Good morning. I'd like to look to our Lord in prayer as we open up God's word on this Easter Sunday and reflect upon what Christ has done for us. And so, Father, we now, after having worshipped you in song and in the giving of our tithes and our offerings, which belong to you, we come before you now as people who realize that in this fallen world that Jesus Christ has come, he has died on the cross for our sins, and on the third day he was raised from the dead. Seated now at the right hand of the Father, some day to return, we give all praise to you. So Father, with our scriptures now open before us, with our anticipation of what you want to say to us residing within. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and in him only. I will pray these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a story that has continually spoken to my heart. Margaret Higgins was a Pulitzer Prize winning writer who covered the Korean War with her abilities second to none. She was known for her perceptive, extraordinarily sensitive stories about what it was like for people to be fighting at the front lines. On one occasion, she describes the situation where she was positioned with the 5th Company of Marines. It was early evening, and the, and the company had stopped their march for their evening meal. They were experiencing what we might describe as deep, deep-rooted bone fatigue, anxiety, fear, the fear of death. One huge Marine, she writes, was leaning back against a truck eating his cold meal from a, from a tin can. He had been in the field for many days. His clothes were stiff, dirt, cold, heavily bearded, encrusted with mud, almost expressionless, his face, because of the immense fatigue that he was feeling. And along came Margaret Higgins, with accompanied a small group of, of reporters on the scene, trying to get an exciting lead for the next article. And then Margaret asked a question, poignant question, strange, perhaps insensitive question. Quote, if I were God, and could grant you anything you wished, what would you want most? Unquote. We're told that the Marines stood there motionless and then said, just give me tomorrow. 
Just give me tomorrow. As Joseph of Arimathea makes his way toward that cross to remove Christ's body from the cross, he was entering into a place known in Israel as the place of the skull, known as the place of no tomorrow. It's where the hopes and the dreams of life would come to a screeching halt. But the question is, how will Jesus Christ bring the tomorrow into the today of his life experience? And the issue that you and I have got to grapple with on this Easter Sunday is the way in which God brings the tomorrow into the today, the eternal into the temporal, and addresses the issues that are foremost on your heart and on your mind, where maybe you have lived a life filled with empty promises, but you are a person that is seeking authentic truth. I like that. And so this morning, If you find yourself in that company of people that have lived lives that have produced one empty promise after another, and you're exhausted by that kind of life journey, but nonetheless you are someone that is a seeker of absolute truth, then what I want to do is to invite you to join me now as we open in God's Word We are like that Marine who stands there motionless, longing for tomorrow. The one who is risen says, I've got endless tomorrows for you if you put your faith and your trust exclusively in me as your Savior and as your Lord. Let's dig in. There are five scenes found here in this passage that was just read to us that I want to explore with you together, each of which I might put some kind of caption beside or under. And the first comes out of verses 57 through 61 in the 27th chapter of Matthew, that if you are seeking authentic truth, and I hope you are, not empty promises, I want to begin, I want to consider with you the reality, first of all, of Christ's distinctive burial. So you pick it up with me now in this 57th verse. And here you and I read, when it was evening, there, was, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Now, what's extraordinary at this point is that Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin, the group of Jewish leaders that had voted to put Jesus Christ to death. They wanted him removed from the scene. What is this man doing? And furthermore, how can this man, who is part of the Sanhedrin, be described as a disciple of Jesus? What I want to say to you this morning is that followers of Jesus Christ can be found in the strangest of places. 
Don't assume when, wherever you are and whoever you are with that that person doesn't love Jesus. He's hanging with the crowd that, frankly, wanted to hang Jesus. But what we find here is that here is an individual in the minority, but an individual nonetheless who wants to address this matter of Christ on the cross. What's fascinating is that eight centuries prior in Isaiah 53's chapter, we are told that there would be the Messiah who would be, who would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. You can almost set everything in motion now, can't you? Sure you can. And here comes the rich man, Joseph, disciple of Jesus. So he goes to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now, that's not normally what one does as a Jew, because you would be viewed as contaminated. But Pilate, secularist as he is, orders it to be given to him. Now, Pilate would not allow for this to take place unless he had the certainty that Jesus Christ had truly died. But the reality is, is that the soldiers who had vested interest in making certain of Christ's death had reported to him that, in fact, he had died. So Pilate, in turn, orders that the body be given to him. And so now. And so here you have that Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean, clean linen shroud, and laid it in, and I've marked this in my Greek Bible, his own tomb. But furthermore, his own new tomb. For you see, the newness and the dynamic of newness in the scriptures are such that he takes, God does, all those who are saying, I am so tired of the old way of living, and I want to press newness into your life experience. Is that what you're looking for today? Enough of this. My journey has spun one series of empty promises. And what I am longing for is some form of real newness that can grip my heart. Track the word new throughout the scriptures. See how they relate to the Christian experience. Now, what fascinates us all the more is that this is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And so, this means then that he is willing to have Jesus Christ's body buried in his tomb. I want you to ponder now the reality of substitution. At the cross of Jesus Christ, there was a substitution made where Barabbas was released and Christ became his substitute at the cross. Once again, a substitution occurs at the tomb where this is where Joseph of Arimathea was meant to be laid, but lo and behold, it's Christ. 
All throughout, what we find here is a series of critical substitutions being made that grip the attention of the individual, saying, what's going on here? What is God teaching here? But the ultimate substitution is when Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for me to save us from the penalty of our sins. And the fact that Pilate would release the body verifies the fact, accentuates the fact, that Christ had in fact died. Therefore, in God's mind, the penalty has now been paid, the sinless dying for the sinful. And so he wrapped him, as he did, in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And Dr. Longenecker, a professor, 34-year-old lady with only one word on the headstone of a particular tomb when he was visiting a graveyard in Switzerland, one word on that, on that headstone, warum, which in the German is why. And maybe you find yourself asking a series of why questions in your life journey. Why? Dr. Longenecker tells us that four graves beyond this lady, with the date of death being given as eight months later, is the grave of a 74-year-old man with the following answer on its headstone. Mit Gott ist keiner warum. English. With God, there is no questioning why. Now, what God does at this point is to address the why question. It's as if the tomb is now speaking reality into our lives. Now, this is one in which Joseph of Arimathea had cut in the rock, and so he rolled a great stone to the entrance. Now, typically... In the Roman culture, in which there was such a matter at stake, that this stone would be about one ton in weight. It would be set on an incline, there would be a wedge in its place, and at the appropriate time, the one, in this case a wealthy man who would have assistance, would have the wedge removed, and then the stone would slide into place, and, and furthermore, this grave, this tomb, would be sealed. Well, he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. And maybe Mary at this point is saying, for whom? Why? He went away, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Now, if you were to go back to verse 56, you would find that at the cross, there was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And so now we find witnesses at the cross. But now furthermore, what we find is that there are witnesses at the tomb. Again, what God is doing now is he's pulling together the reality of the death-resurrection story and wants to press home the point of the significance of what is occurring here. And he is using eyewitnesses to be able to attest to what is being stated. Dr. J. Gresham Machen once remarked, 
It's not built on a complex of ideas, Christianity, but rather is based upon a historic fact with witnesses present. And so now, there you have it. And so let's get a sense of what the, of what the place of the skull looks like as, as Joseph of Arimathea has made his way there because, and I've been there and stood and stared at that stone as uh, others have in this congregation. Screams says, this is the place of no tomorrow. Doesn't it seem to be saying this is the place where, where your dreams and your hopes and your wishes come to an end and there's a period, not a comma here? But what God is saying, there is more to come. And so as a Marine is saying, just give me a tomorrow. Now what God is saying, as the story moves from scene one to scene two, is tomorrow's a coming. Hang on. And so you first of all noticed with me here Christ's distinctive burial, and you're looking at the place of no tomorrows, so one would think the place of the skull, but there's still, as Paul Harvey put it more to the story. So you pick it up now in chapter 27, verse 62, and notice the second scene, which I'll simply refer to as Christ's secured tomb. Where the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, for you see, we're in Passover, and there's no irony there. What this is, is the reality that God is taking what might be called the Lamb of God, the ultimate Lamb of God, allowing him to die when all these sacrificial lambs in the midst of Passover are being slain, to grip the attention of the religionists while inciting the thought processes of the secularist. On the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Pilate's a busy man. He's got Joseph of Arimathea coming to him, and he wants, they want the body. He wants the body. And now, furthermore, the Pharisees and uh, the chief priests are coming before him, and now they say in verse 63, Sir, we remember how that imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days I will arise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, quote, he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. We told Pilate said to them, you have a God of soldiers. In other words, you've got vested interest in this. You guys can make absolutely certain. You've got vested concerns about this matter. Use your own God. Make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made this tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a God. I love it. Once there was a spider, Eileen Lager writes, once there was a spider who lived in a tree 
And the webs he wove were the strongest, the glossiest, the stickiest webs that a spider could ever construct. Many bugs and beetles and many ants and other insects found themselves caught, quick-dried, stored away in his loaded larder. But one thing alone troubled his tranquil existence. You see, close to his tree ran a railroad track. And every morning when the train whished by, his whole house shuddered and shook. And sometimes he even lost a few of his tasty tidbits he had intended for a treat. That's the last, he shouted one day when he found part of his house torn away. I'll put a stop to that train. It won't trouble me anymore. And so that night he spun a long, glossy filament that strode and rode out and out and out. And when the wind gave a stronger puff than usual, he leaped into the air and went flying across the tracks to the tree on the other side. But now, now his evil plan began. So back and forth, back and forth, from tree to tree, he ran, weaving the strongest, the glossiest, the stickiest web any spider could ever construct. None had ever been so fine, none so strong, so tough, so utterly unbreakable. I'll seal it with a seal, (coughs) he muttered as he glued it doubly fast. I'll get some of my friends to guard it as well. That'll make sure, sure can be. And the next morning came the train, and it could be heard. It was the Logos Express, and was coming awfully fast. Hurrah, laughed the spider. What a wreck this will be. As the train continued down the tracks, laughed the spider. Whew, the train warned, whoosh, and the spider web was gone. As sure as you can, said Pilate. You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure. Now that the one-ton stone was in place, then the Roman seal would be strapped around it. Caesar's emblem would be placed upon it. And so anybody who would tamper with the stone would be put to death. This is a story of life and death, or is it death and life? And so you're exploring the significance of what's here. Christ's distinctive burial in 57 through 61. Christ's secured tomb in 62 through 66. Then what? Scene three. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, because they had been so positioned at both cross and now the tomb, they were well familiar with the terrain, so much for the argument that they went to the wrong tomb because they've already been there. Do you see God's sovereign purposes at work? And behold, there was an earthquake. 
Now, when you explore the Gospel accounts, what you'll find is that there was an earthquake that took place at the cross as Jesus died, where nature is attesting to the reality of Christ's death. Now there is an earthquake at the place of Christ's resurrection attesting to the three days later story of reality. So what nature is now doing is that it is making a pronouncement regarding the significance that there's a tomorrow for your today. As a marine wonders, while he stands on the front lines of life, and maybe that's where you're at, wondering, do I have a tomorrow that's going to be better than my today? But the question is, if you put your faith and trust in the one who holds the tomorrow as well as your today. Great earthquake. We're told, and it's interesting, in the original language, a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended, which gives me the impression that, that the angel is the reason for the earthquake. Descended from heaven, came in and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And in verse 4, you and I are told that for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, which makes me smile because he didn't say to the soldiers, do not be afraid. He says to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And so my question to you now is, are you seeking Jesus? But make absolutely certain that you're not seeking Jesus in all the wrong places. He's not in that tomb. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now notice the tenses of the verbs, was crucified, but moves from past tense to present. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. And then the most powerful of statements, Come see the place where he lay. Not many years ago, there was a, a gifted, prominent lawyer in the nation named Frank Morrison who produced a book entitled, Who Moved the Stone? He was a secularist, and he wanted to disprove the gospel accounts. I studied this book carefully with Dr. Norman Geisler and Dr. Harold O.J. Brown years ago in graduate school. It's an analytic treatment of the last week of the life of Jesus. We told he began the study with the avowed purpose of destroying the supposed delusion of belief in resurrection. And he expected that a careful scrutiny of the evidence would prove the belief to be unfounded. 
And this lawyer, though he proceeded on purely rationalistic grounds with the assumption of inspiration, the sheer weight of the evidence of the Gospels drove Morse into the conclusion, the opposite conclusion, to the very uh, aims to which he had started. And after examining carefully all the facts, concluded with this statement from his book, which is in my office library, there may be... And as this writer thinks, there certainly is a profoundly historical basis for that much disputed sentence in the Apostles' Creed. The third day, he rose again from the dead. David Watson believed that. At the age of 50, this gifted pastor in London passed away. People were moved by his teachings and his writings. And so at the time of his memorial service, all over London, people gathered together at St. Paul's. More than 2,000 people, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, present. So many people from Parliament. A servant had died, and God's people from all across London, from all nations and all stations, present all colors, all races. And as the service began, the presiding pastor reminded the worshipers that David Watson's favorite festal shout was, quote, our God reigns, unquote, when suddenly, almost if it started by a gentle breeze, the shout began in the back of the great cathedral, sweeping across rows of, of grandly carved mahogany pews in a rising crescendo, our God reigns. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. And some thought for certain that all of London could hear the thundering chorus. Our God reigns. Well, you go to that tomb with me now, and you realize our God reigns. No question but an exclamation point. Well, now, in verse 7, then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, where you will see him, I have told you. They departed quickly from the tomb. Notice, and this is so typical of humanity, the mixture of fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples, they're on mission. I know it's Sunday, but Mondays are coming. And so is true for you and for me. We have to take the reality of Resurrection Sunday and transfer it into the realities of sleeves rolled up, we're back to work on Monday. What difference does it make? I would argue all the difference in the world. And so, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Why? We're told that when they ran to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them and said, I can almost see it now, this is your Lord. Greetings. Greetings. 
Can you imagine the emotions at that point? Notice the subtlety of the greeting. Notice the reality of the reactions. They came up to cold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Now, he didn't tell the soldiers that. But he did tell these women that. But you see, it's Sunday and Mondays are coming. You got work to do. You got a sleeves rolled up approach to your life journey. Go and tell my brothers. Go to Galilee. And there, they'll see me. They'll see me. Well, what to do? In your fourth scene, while they were going, behold, two of the God went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. It seems as though money is being transferred regarding Christ's death. Now money is being transferred regarding Christ's resurrection. Judas is the one, the recipient at Christ's death. And now what we find here is that the soldiers are recipients of Christ's resurrection. Uh, Tell the people His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this this day. But then I'm reminded of what Abraham Lincoln once said. You can fool some of the people all the time, and all the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time because you begin to examine the realities of the evidence at hand. For example, the disciples of Jesus Nazareth were changed because something happened that absolutely, I'll just put it this way, blew their minds. They claimed that they had seen Jesus after he died. How do you explain this one, furthermore? The disciples were willing to die for their claim that they had seen Jesus after his death, but they were not willing to do so prior to his death. They would flee. Furthermore, the disciples were not the only ones who saw Jesus after his death. There were more than 500 people who saw him, added upon which... The religious and governmental institutions had a vested interest in stopping the rapid spread of the Christian faith, but they could not do it. And the witnesses to the resurrection were credible witnesses, or else their testimonies would not have held up. And we ponder that as we look at the conspiracy theory there was hard at work, but was bumping into the realities of the fact that he is risen. He is risen, indeed. Christ's determined opponents, your fourth scene, which leads you to your final, your final scene. Because now in Matthew chapter 28, 
I'm back to the disciples. Because fifthly, what I want you to notice here is Christ's global impact. Where the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Notice the extraordinary reaction whenever one is in the presence of the Lord, you worship him. You worship him. Don't neglect your Sunday worship, people. Worship him. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But I'm not surprised, are you? Some doubt it. Even in the midst of the worship context, there were going to be those on the fringe doubting. Yet Jesus now, with all authority, will say to them, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And what grips your attention when you think about Christ's global, global impact? Look at, look at that tomb and the door that is there. He's not here, for he is risen. Bukharin had to learn that the hard way. 1930, Bolshevik Bukharin journeyed from Moscow in Russia to, of all places, Kiev in Ukraine. His mission was to address a huge assembly, and the subject was atheism. And for a solid hour, he aimed his heavy artillery at Christianity, hurling argument, ridicule, and so forth. And at last, he was finished and viewed what seemed to be a, a, the smoldering ashes of men's faith, and then posed this. Are there any questions? He demanded. Get this. A courageous, solitary man arose and asked permission to speak. He mounted the platform, moved close to the communist. The audience was breathlessly silent as the man surveyed them, first to the right, then to the left. And at last he shouted the ancient orthodox greeting, Christ is risen! And the vast assembly arose as one man, and the response came crashing like the sound of an avalanche. He is risen indeed, so people. He is, he is risen indeed. And Father, we thank you. You're sovereign. The door to that tomb proclaims the fact that he is risen, just as he said. And we see your global authority. And so I pray now for that person who's on some kind of journey, and they're wondering if somehow, some way, they can make their tomorrow better than their today. And they are bone-weary of empty promises and are now ready in this life journey for authentic truth. 
speak to that heart. And I pray that he or she now will put faith exclusively in the risen one, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.